0: Clara was in the midst of one of the worst days of her life. The washing machine had broken down, the telephone kept ringing, her head ached, and the mail carrier brought a bill she had no money to pay for. Almost at the breaking point, she lifted her one-year-old into his high chair, leaned her head against the high chair tray, and began to cry. Without a word, her son took his pacifier out of his mouth and stuck it in her mouth. Have you ever had one of those days where all you want to do is cry and have someone put a figurative pacifier into your mouth so that all of your problems will seemingly go away? You know, in life, there are simply so many challenges in our lives that we don't often know where to turn and how to respond. Many of us right now are consumed with enormous challenges in our personal lives. Now, we may appear to be problem-free, And we may look good on the outside, but on the inside we are consumed with dealing with issues over here and problems over there. And it seems like there is no resolution to be found. We have health challenges, family challenges, personal challenges, challenges that come from unexpected things, challenges that come from uncertainties, not knowing which direction our country is headed next, the challenges of an unjust world, in other words, challenges abound in our lives. And so the question is how do we as followers of Jesus Christ respond to these challenges? Because how we respond is indicative of an underlying perspective of what we really believe about God. Let's identify some responses when faced with challenges and see if we can learn some life lessons that will encourage us in our spiritual journey. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 as we continue our study in the book of Joshua in our series entitled, Courage in the Crucible. As you're turning to this chapter by way of a recap, remember that the people of Israel were commanded by God to enter their rightful promised land and to conquer it and to do so by removing the pagan peoples and enemies that lived in that land. This instruction from God to the people was given by Moses on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and now on the western side of the Jordan, it was Joshua leading the people of Israel, seeming to do the work that God had commanded and doing it well. But then now we have a major challenge. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains. All the territories of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurites from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, the Ekronites, and the Avites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mariah that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Afek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gebalites, and all Lebanon, towards the sunrise from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Mizperath, and all the Sidonians Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel, only divided by law to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites receive their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them. From where we last left off in Joshua chapter 10 verse 27, from chapter 10 verse 28 to chapter 11 and 12, the Bible speaks about all of the lands in the promised land of Canaan that Joshua had led the people of Israel to conquer. It was many lands conquered and many enemies that were defeated and destroyed. However, from our reading of these verses, it is clear that there are still yet many lands yet to be conquered and many pagan peoples still to drive out of this land. And the major challenge was that Joshua was too old to lead the people of Israel. And God was pretty upfront with Joshua in verse 1 and told him, you are old and you aren't going to be able to continue to lead the people and get the work done before you die. So you're going to have to divide the work. Specifically, each of the 12 tribes of Israel would have to take up the challenge and the responsibility to drive out the pagan people from the land allocated to them by God. This may be intimidating to them because they would no longer have Joshua leading them and they would not have the combined forces of all of Israel's 12 tribes to defeat the enemies. Now it was just the men of their tribes driving out the enemies in their allotted lands. But they were not to worry, because at the end of verse 6, there again is a recommitment from God that He would help each of the twelve tribes rid themselves of their enemies. So now all Joshua had to do was divide the land for nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan River as the two and a half tribes had gotten their land allocation already on the east side of the Jordan River. Just as an aside, let me just say that this is a great reminder that the work of God does not end with you. You aren't the only one that can do the job. God will continue His work with others. So don't hold on so tightly onto your ministry position or ministry work as there will be others who come after you that will do God's work. We are just to remain faithful to what God has called us to do. So what Joshua does in chapters 13 to 19 is that he will... Divide the land according to the instructions God had given to Moses and also to him. The sections of the promised land would be divided, and as God directs, a tribe would be assigned to that sectioned land. But in these chapters, we have some interesting things that happen as the land is being divided. There are four reactions to the challenge of conquering the land assigned. Let's take a look at Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephana, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that they saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. As the land was being divided, Caleb came to his good friend Joshua and reminded him that he was one of the 12 spies of Israel sent by Moses to scout the promised land after they had left Egypt. Only two spies came back with good reports that they would be able to take the land and conquer the land with God's help. And these two spies were Joshua and Caleb. However, the discouraging reports of the other 10 spies was such that it scared and discouraged the people so that they rebelled Against God. They didn't want to enter the land. The fallout from the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea by the people of Israel against God and his command to conquer the land resulted in that generation of adults dying and never entering the promised land with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two of that generation to enter the promised land. For his faithfulness to God And courage and God's enabling power, God promised Caleb and his family that he would have a special inheritance when the time came for the land east of the Jordan River to be divided up. Look what Caleb says in verses 10 and 11. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Imagine, Caleb says, I'm 85 years old, and I'm still as strong and still as ready and courageous to fight as I was 45 years ago when I was 40. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know many 85-year-olds who are ready to fight, who are ready to start life anew. Most 85-year-olds I know are ready to retire or are retired and wanting to find a peaceful life. But so is the life of Caleb, one who was always willing to fight for the Lord, to do what the Lord desired of him. Now, look at the lands that Caleb chose for him and his family to be given as His inheritance. Look at verses 12 to 15. Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh as an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirja arba Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Imagine, Caleb asked for Hebron and the area around it. This was the land where the ten spies saw the so-called giants of the land and caused great fear in them. This is where the fearsome Anakims lived with their great cities and their fortified defenses. This was one of the toughest lands in the land of Canaan. But this was the land that Caleb chose for him and his family to settle in. And he would have to first conquer these people. This 85-year-old said, With God's help, by faith, I'm going to drive out these toughest of pagan peoples. What an amazing reaction to a challenge. Caleb typifies someone who looks at challenges and faces them head on. He doesn't shirk away or take the easy way out. He squares up to the challenges and takes it. He basically tells Joshua, Give me the hardest task And how is Caleb able to respond like this? Because he trusts in the Almighty God. This has marked his life since his younger days. If you have a chance, go back and read Numbers chapter 13 and 14. There he declares to his generation that with God's help, they would be able to conquer the land. He saw beyond the giants of the land. He saw beyond the fortified cities of the land. He saw the Almighty God who was bigger and stronger. And that passion and that faith and trust in the Almighty God did not diminish throughout his years. And at the age of 85, he says to Joshua, Give me and my family the toughest of lands, and with God's help, we're going to take it for the Lord. You see, in Caleb, we see reaction to challenge, number one. Facing challenges head-on because of a trust in Almighty God. Reaction to challenge, number one. Facing challenges head-on because of a trust in Almighty God. What about us, my friends? When presented with challenges in our lives, do we see beyond these challenges and look at the Almighty God who is able to help us overcome? Or is our sights so focused only on the challenges of our lives, it leaves us discouraged? In May of 2001, Eric Weihandmeyer accomplished something that only about 150 people do each year, which was to reach the top of Mount Everest. The thing that made Eric's achievement so unusual was that he was the first blind person in the world To succeed in scaling this tallest mountain in the world, Eric was born with a disease called retinoscasis, and by the time he was 13, he was completely blind. Rather than focus on what he could not do, he made the choice to focus on what he could do and went much further than almost anyone expected. Eric's autobiography is titled Touch the Top of the World A Blind Man's Journey to climb farther than the eye can see. I like the title of his book, A Blind Man's Journey to Climb Farther Than the Eye Can See. You see, many times we face a choice. Will we allow obstacles to stop us or will we keep on pressing regardless of opposition and challenges and trouble? We need to see beyond what our eye sees to see the Almighty God and what He can do. And when our sights are focused on Him, then we can take on life's challenges head on. How does Caleb do what he says he's going to do? Jump with me to the next chapter and look at Joshua chapter 15, verses 13 to 17. Look how he leads his family to do what he says he would do. Verse 13, now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, He gave a share among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirja Arba, which is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Sheshai, Iman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly, the name of Debir was Kirja Shefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kirjah Shefer, and takes it, to him I will give Aksha, my daughter, as wife. So Othniel, the son of Kenes, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave to him Aksha, his daughter, as wife. As difficult as the task was, Caleb and his nephew Othniel, who would later be a future judge of Israel, did it with God's help. He overcame the Anakites and took them down and conquered Hebron for the Lord. It's easy to say you will take up the task of facing a difficult challenge. But to actually follow through is another matter. But Caleb did it with the Lord's help because he trusted in the power of the Almighty God and the Lord helped him. Now another response to the challenge of what the people of Israel had to do in contrast to the courage of Caleb. Turn with me one chapter over to Joshua chapter 17. Verse 14, then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, why have you given us only one lot and one shared inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? Now, if you remember, the descendants of Joseph were to be given a double portion through Joseph's son, Ephraim and Manasseh. So here they are complaining that they didn't get enough land for their great tribes as the land was being divided. Look how Joshua answers them in verse 15. So Joshua answered them, If you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. Joshua basically told them, Before you ask for more land, did the land assigned to you, which is God-ordained, Go out and conquer the land assigned to you first and drive out the Canaanites in the forest area and in the lands of the Parasites, which is assigned to you. Joshua knew that this was a difficult area, like the one Caleb had chosen. There were giants, really strong and tall warriors. But the combined strength of these two tribes, these two sons of Joseph, should be no problem with God's help to accomplish this task. Remember, Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim, so he was talking very frankly to his own tribesmen. But from their response, you see why they wanted more land allocation. Look at verse 16. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are of beth and its town, and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Here in verse 16, we see the real reason why they're asking for more land. The reason they wanted more land or another land was because the enemy in the land allocated to them had iron chariots. It means they had advanced technology for their time. And the sons of Joseph knew that conquering the land assigned to them would be very difficult. So instead of being like Caleb and rising up to the challenge... They shied away from the task that God had given them. A land and a task assigned to them that God said that I will give you success with my help if you simply take it on. These sons of Joseph represented a response to challenge number two. Response to challenge number two, desiring another way because of a diminished view of God. Desiring another way because of a diminished view of God. These are people who, when they encounter a challenge, simply want to find another way to avoid it. They want the easy way out, to take the easy road. They don't care about the great lessons that they would learn from facing head-on challenges in one's life with God's help. They simply don't like challenges in their lives. At their core, people like this have a very diminished view of God. God is simply too small for them. And because of that, they did not trust God and are unable to take on challenges. The tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh were worried that they would not be able to defeat the Canaanites in their assigned lands because they had iron chariots. For them, it was too big of a challenge, it was impossible. And yet they forgot how the Lord had miraculously led them across a dry river Jordan. How the walls of Jericho fell down simply with a loud shout. And how they were able to achieve miraculous defeat of their enemies with God helping them. They had forgotten that God could help them. They didn't see God. They only saw the iron chariots, the fearsome parasite warriors the giants that lived in the land that they were assigned. And so they said to Joshua, give us another land. My friends, it is the same in our lives. When we are called to live in challenging times like in a pandemic or in a world that mocks Christ and belittles Christian. instead of living in the tension of these challenges for God's glory to fulfill His purpose, we simply want to find another place, an easy way out. And so we isolate ourselves, we retreat from the world. We only have Christian friends, and our world is simply the church people, so that we won't have to encounter non-Christians who have opposing views from us. We want a life without problems, so we don't get involved in helping other peoples, because we know it gets messy when we involve ourselves in other people's lives. Our response to the challenge of our lives is to shirk back and to look for another way. And it is rooted in having a diminished view of God and that perhaps He isn't able to do what He says He will or can do. Did you ever notice that men and women who have great faith are those who live problematic lives, who live in challenging times? They do not blame God for their troubles but have confidence that God will help them through these problems or overcome their difficulties. They are often looking for the spiritual lessons that they can learn that these hardships bring. While in contrast, those who have it easy in life often have a very soft and weak faith where they begin to question God at the first sign of trials and challenges in their lives. I hope that your response isn't to shy away at the challenges that come along your way, because if so, then there is a deeper problem in your life. You have a diminished view of the Almighty God. Look at verses 17 and 18. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have only one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooden, you shall cut it down and its farthest extent shall be yours for you shall drive out the Canaanites though they have iron chariots and are strong. Joshua challenged these two tribes. He said that these tribal allotments to you, you will be able to conquer with God's enabling help. Even if they had advanced technology like iron chariots, With God's help, you will be victorious. Notice how Joshua doesn't give them additional land. He doesn't give them another land. He doesn't give them a way out. You know, it's interesting. People who try to opt out of facing the challenges of their life will eventually have to face those problems. It's not like your problems will go away when you stick your head into the ground and don't acknowledge the problem the problems and challenges of life that you want to avoid will simply still be there. And it's really up to you whether you want to tackle them with your own power or with the enabling power of the Almighty God. I remember the story of a man who went to a barber shop to have his hair and his beard cut, as always. He started to have a good conversation with the barber who attended to him. They began to talk about many things and various subjects. Suddenly, they began to talk about God. The barber said, look, man, I don't believe that God exists, as you say. Why do you say that, said the client? Well, it's easy. You just have to go out into the street to realize that God doesn't exist. Oh, tell me, if God existed, would there be so many sick people? Would there be abandoned children? If God existed, there would be no suffering nor pain. I can't think of a loving God who permits all of these things. The client stopped for a moment thinking but he didn't want to respond so as to cause an argument the barber finished his job and the client went out of the shop just after he left the barber shop he saw a man in the street with a long hair and beard and so he again entered the barber shop and he said to the barber you know what barbers do not exist the barber asked how can you say they don't exist I am here. I'm a barber. I just cut your hair. No, the client exclaimed. They don't exist because if they did, there would be no people with long hair and a beard like that man who walks in the street. Ah, barbers do exist. What happens is that people do not come to me, the barber retorted. Exactly, affirmed the client. That's the point. God does exist. What happens is people don't go to Him and do not look for Him. That's why there is so much pain and suffering in this world. Similarly, challenges in our lives are hard, but it's because we don't go to God and look for Him. Let not your response be to escape the challenges of your life. It's still going to be there. Let your response be to go to Almighty God and ask Him for help. Now, go over to chapter 18 for a third response to the allocation of land for the tribes to conquer. Look at Joshua chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. Now, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? The base camp of Israel, along with a tabernacle, moved from Gilgal to Shiloh, a more centralized location. But somehow the process of dividing the land among the tribes of Israel had stopped. Seven out of the twelve tribes had not received their land allocation. Apparently, the allocation process was driven by the leaders of the tribes of Israel. It wasn't because Joshua had not gotten around to it, but it was because these seven tribes didn't take the initiative to do the surveying to mark the divisions of the land that they were to conquer. And so in verse 3, they were rebuked by Joshua for procrastinating and not doing what they knew they were responsible for. It's almost as if they thought, if we can drag out this process and we aren't officially assigned a land, then we won't be responsible to conquer it. So let's just wait for Joshua to push us. And Joshua calls them on their procrastination. And in verses 4 to 10, we see just that. Joshua pushes them to survey the land, to continue the process of surveying the land and then receiving their allocation. And then they would now be responsible, each as a tribe, to conquer their allocated lands. It can be said that these seven tribes and their reactions typify response to challenge number three. Lacking self-initiative because of a lack of responsibility. Response to challenge number three. Lacking self-initiative because of a lack of responsibility. These seven tribes didn't take the initiative and were called out by Joshua. And I believe it's because they didn't see it as their tribal responsibility to take the allocated promised lands. Perhaps they wanted someone else to face the challenge for them, or they wanted the lands allocated to them only when it is free of the Canaanites. But Joshua said, you have a responsibility to go and take the lands that have been assigned to you similarly it is the same for many of us today we forget that we have a responsibility to face the challenges of life with god's help head on we often lack the self-initiative to confront these challenges or to deal with them we often have to be pushed and guilted into addressing these issues and it's because we fail to see that it is our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to show the world how we can take on challenges in life with God's help. You know, I'm by nature very lazy at home. That's why we have three children to get them to do things for me. They have their responsibilities and chores. But for one of them, I ask my child to fill my water bottle every day with water and to put exactly three pieces of ice in my water bottle. I know that child doesn't like to serve me in that regard, but I still ask of that person because I like to think it helps them build character. One would think that my child would do it every day without being told or having to be told. But why is it that I have to ask that child to do it every time when the water bottle is empty? It can be very frustrating at times. But then I think on the flip side, when my wife tells me to do something, she'll tell me to do the same thing over and over, even though I know I need to do it. I'm supposed to turn off the lights in the bathroom and to close the door to insulate the cold air and to save electricity. But I still always have to be reminded by her to do this. You can imagine how frustrating it must be for God to seemingly have to remind us over and over again to do what we need to do. You see, the lack of self-initiative ends up boiling down to a lack of a sense of responsibility. At its core, a lack of self-initiation is a lack of responsibility. When you don't think you have to do it, you won't do it. These seven tribes didn't think they had to have a part in conquering the land, So they didn't find the self-initiative to help Joshua finish the allotment task until Joshua called them out. Let's be careful about our response to the challenges of our lives. We all have a responsibility in showing the world how to respond to the challenges that come into our life with God's help. So let's be more proactive in facing the challenges of our lives instead of having a defeatist, come what may, attitude. Now the fourth response, turn with me to Joshua chapter 19, verses 49 to 51. Joshua chapter 19, verses 49 to 51. When they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua the son of Nun. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnah-Serah, in the mountains of Ephraim. And he built the city and dwelt in it. These were the inheritance which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel, divided as an inheritance by Lot in Shiloh before the Lord, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So they made an end of dividing the country. As the allocation of the land to the twelve tribes of Israel is now finished, the tribal leaders... Wanted to give Joshua a land of his choice as his inheritance. And to our surprise, it is a place that is unassuming, just a place in the highlands given to his tribe Ephraim. You know, if I was Joshua and I had a choice, I would have picked a spot on the beautiful Mediterranean coast, or by the beautiful Sea of Galilee, or by the fertile Jordan River. But Joshua asked for a simple town in a rugged mountainous area. He got his allocation, cleared out the enemies that were there, and built a city for him and his family to live in. Not a word of complaint. No need to push him to do it. No asking for additional lands. His action lacked any fanfare. And I believe Joshua's actions and response typifies response to challenge number four. Facing challenges without fanfare because trials can be overcome with God's help. Response to challenge number four. Facing challenges without fanfare because trials can be overcome with God's help. Joshua had lived life long enough and had led the people of Israel with God's help to know that there are always going to be obstacles and challenges in life. And you can simply embrace it and face them with God's help without much fanfare. These verses speak to his humility. He was the last one to be assigned a tribal allocation of land. It simply exudes something without fanfare. In our world today, we feel the need to have to tell everyone about the challenges we undergo, even if they're really small issues. Now, while there is a place to tell our life's struggles and challenges amongst your close friends and family for support, encouragement, and prayer, We have a tendency to overdo it. We seek to be coddled and to have people rally to our cause as we face the challenges of our lives. But because we feel that everyone needs to rally to us as we fight life's challenges, in those times when few are rallying behind us and we aren't being supported in the way we think we should, then we don't find the motivation to face the challenges of our lives. That's why facing challenges without fanfare is important because at its root, we are reminded that the trials of our life do not come from the cheering on of other people. It comes through God's help. After World War II, when the soldiers came back from war, what marked that generation, often called the greatest generation, was that very few people who fought in the war often talked about what they went through and what they did in the war. They were heroes, but they didn't tell their story. It was their duty. It was a part of their life, and they simply returned from war and went straight back to living their lives as normally as they had when they first left. They went back to working, raising, and supporting a family, building a home, building a household. And that was a generation that was tough because they went through the trials. They realized that trials were normal, a part of life, and they quietly lived their life to be the greatest generation as they recognized that it was simply something that was a part of life. But in our times today, in our generation today, we get a scratch and we put on an antiseptic and a Band-Aid on it and we think we need to tell the whole world how we were so brave to overcome A small little cut. Oh my, if that is our attitude today, when faced with real problems and challenges in our life, how will we respond? The Scriptures remind us in James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. How in the world do we do that? How do we consider it pure joy when the trials and the challenges of life come? It comes when we face these trials without fanfare knowing that, yes, they are a part of life, but we will overcome it with God's help. I'm not saying this so that you will be tougher. I'm not saying this so that you need to be tougher. I'm telling you this so that you can be a witness to the world. They are watching how Christians face trials. And sadly, many Christians don't face trials very well. Many of us know that Handel wrote, the world-renowned oratorio called Messiah about the life of Christ. The famous Hallelujah Chorus is part of that oratorio. But you probably don't know what he went through to write that wonderful masterpiece. George Handel was dogged with misfortune. He had debt upon debt, despair upon despair. He had a cerebral hemorrhage and was paralyzed on his right side. For four years, he could neither walk nor write. The doctors gave up on him. He wrote several operas, but again, he failed to sell them, and he fell into debt. At age 60, he thought his life was finished, that he was challenged by a friend to write a sacred oratorio. He read the Scriptures and found encouragement to the life of Christ, and he decided to do his work on the life of Christ. And for 24 days, without eating a crumb, he worked fanatically to produce the world-famous Messiah, which many today consider the greatest oratorio ever written. And this oratorio does not speak about his suffering. It gives glory to God and a testimony to the world when one can face the challenges of life without much fanfare because for us, trials are nothing when we have God with us. And I believe George Handel, as he wrote, the Messiah, was so encouraged by seeing a God who helps him through trials, that he wrote this masterpiece. I conclude with this story told by John Yates. He says, It was advertised that the devil was putting up for sale all of his tools. On that date, the tools were laid out. They had prices marked for them for public inspection. And there were a lot of treacherous instruments Hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, pride, lying, and so on. Laid apart from the rest of the devil's tool was a tool, but it was worn more than any of the others. It was priced very high. What's the name of this tool? Asked one of the customers. That, the devil replied, is discouragement. Why have you priced it so high? The devil replied, because discouragement is more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open and get inside a man's heart with that when I cannot get near him with any other tools. It's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know it belongs to me. Discouragement is still the devil's tool. Not many people realize he's using it on us and using it on some of us today. Life is full of challenges and discouraging circumstances, even the most blessed people, the most successful people, the most spiritually mature face constant disappointments and discouragements. And these discouragements that the challenges of life bring us will often bring us down. How should you and I, when we go through the challenges of life which many of us are going through, how should we respond? You can respond by facing these challenges head-on because of a trust in the Almighty God. Or you can desire another way because of a diminished view of God. Or perhaps you lack self-initiative to address these issues because of a lack of responsibility. Or you face these challenges without fanfare because trials can be overcome with God's help. Response 1 and 4 are great responses response two and three are not. But if you respond with responses two and three, I hope you will look at the root issue for why you respond as such and learn from it. Instead of a diminished view of God, have a view of God that has a high view of how great and almighty He is. If you feel that you have a lack of responsibility in engaging the challenges of your life, I hope you will understand that the world is watching, and that you need to engage these challenges with God's help to show the world that Christians, because they have Christ, are overcomers. They have victory in their challenges. May we respond well to the challenges of our life to bring God glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that these men and women, these young men and young women have challenges in their life that has brought great discouragement in them. Often we don't know where to turn and many of us are like the tribes of Israel. We just want to hide away. We have reasons for why we can't tackle the problems of our life. We simply put our head in the sand wishing the problem will go away. But Lord, help us to be a great testimony to the world because we have the living God who is with us, the Almighty God who enables us to take on the challenges of life and to overcome and to find victory. May your word serve to challenge, serve to encourage, serve to edify. Bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.